Sans Pants Radio, Australia's most American podcast network. Hey everyone, welcome to Bookish. I'm George Dimbrellis. This is a show where we ask you what's your story and what does it say about you. Today on the show we have writer and comedian Alistair Baldwin. How are you doing, Alistair? I'm doing wonderfully. The weather's great. I'm in a great mood. How are you, George? I also, actually, you know what? Like it is. I don't want to be one of those people who are seasonally <laughs> affected, but it's hard to be grumpy when it's the first truly warm day. It really is incredible. I'm not like... I don't buy into astrology that much, just like the idea that stars can affect you. But the sun, that is one star that I am completely, absolutely enslaved to. And I like get the worst vitamin D deficiency. I get so SAD sad. And then the second there's a good day, it's all I'm a back. different person. Life's worth a living. Yeah, <laughs> finally. Well, I mean... Are you from Melbourne? Did you grow up here? I'm from Perth originally, actually. Oh, okay. That makes a lot more sense. What are you doing here? <laughs> I know. God. You're like, I, I love the sun. You know where I'm going to go? Melbourne. Yeah. I love <laughs> I love the sun. I love freedom. I'm going to leave Western Australia for some reason. Oh, yeah. No one does cold, miserable lockdown like Melbourne. Well, maybe the UK. <laughs> London did pretty good, actually. Although it's almost crueler to be locked down when the weather's nice. At least through, like, the harsh winter, you sort of really commit to hibernation. Exactly. And I think it's... I always think of it like... I just literally just think of it, think of it today because of the day. But I'm like, oh, yeah. Now masks get uncomfortable because it's like it's yeah. hot. So you're walking, you're like, oh, my God, this sucks. Like, <laughs> you know what? I am anti-vax. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know what? I'm mildly di- uncomfortable. Yeah. <laughs> so you're from Perth. Um, how many years have you been in Melbourne for? Oh, I moved here at the beginning of 2014. So what's that? Oh. Nearly eight years. Fair. Nearly. You're an old hand. I don't know where your math is, but it's, it's stretching. But all right. Actually, I guess, yeah, because it was the start of 2020. Okay, yeah, I guess that actually does work out. It just feels so weird to say. Um, yeah. I'm tired as well, it turns out. So, are you much of a reader? Uh, yeah, I guess so. I, um, yeah. I don't, oh. Do you... I feel like people must always say this where the people who would be keen to do this podcast were big readers and then have destroyed their attention span and now sort of only periodically can get back into books. Is that relatable? Uh, it's more tragically so, I think. Oh, and especially the last uh, year and a half, I think, has made that uh, even more true for people. It's yeah. Like, yeah. It's like, I just want my brain off. <laughs> <laughs> All right, yeah. So you're a victim of the doom scrolling as well, eh? Or the any scrolling? A little bit, yeah. I th- mm. Actually, yeah. When you put it like that, I'm probably reading the same amount of words per day. Maybe even many, many more words than I ever did as a child reading, you know, a series of unfortunate events or every Agatha Christie or whatever. But now it's just like sort of atomized into like two sentence tweets. But, you yeah. know... From a quantity perspective, I'm I'm probably I'm a huge reader. There you, you go. Know? See positive spin on it. I like that. Your yeah, it's this weather. Out. I really <laughs> on any other day I would sort of decry the absolute decay of my brain um, as it mm. becomes poisoned by the internet. But on today, it's a sunny day, and I'm just going to talk about the numbers. You know, 
Yeah, he's just gonna he's gonna talk about my. Oh, you're gonna put a positive spin on it. My brain is poisoned by the internet. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's nice. Um, okay, cool. Well, look, we'll start on the book, and then we'll jump around from there. Find out about your comedy and writing because there's a few stuff there I actually want to ask about. Uh, yeah, but let's start with the book first. What your book of choice for today is? Uh, the Disaster Tourist by Yun Ko Yun. Okay, so you went with that in the end. I. <laughs> Well, I'm torn. I also I would like to talk about the talented Mr. Ripley by Patricia Eismith. I don't know. It's hard. I got indecisive, and then I feel like you let me be indecisive, and now this is sort of a a two book. Podcast. I should have been I should have been more firm on you. Eh? My That's actual right. favorite. See, this is the thing. My actual Did favorite actually- book is The Talented Mr. Ripley by Patricia okay. Highsmith. but I haven't read it in a while, so I was trying to. I was like mentally rehearsing this podcast today and I was trying to remember any like clear detail or even like a beautiful metaphor that she uses or literally any detail and I couldn't. It's all just very like I know intellectually it's my favourite book but as to why I can only trust that that opinion is correct but I can't like retrieve any examples, you know. Yeah. See, now, look, I'm going to be honest with you. This is A lot of guests are getting like this now. They're like, oh, let me pick the one which I can do a metaphor on about something. It's like, no, no, you just pick your favorite that you have right. to remember, and we'll go from there. And we can All talk right. about the other book as well. So you know what? I'm changing your favorite book. Your All book right. of choice for today is now The Talented Mr. Ripley. All right. It's a fantastic book, you know, and I reread the Wikipedia synopsis. So, you know, I actually am across the plot. If you... Do you need do you need the plot first? You ask think, the questions. Uh, <laughs> I, I'm really I was about to just kick back and really move away from the mic. <laughs> yeah. like, oh, no, you got this. You got this. <laughs> um, so first, yes, for the plot, uh, for quickly people don't know because uh, I guess I'm actually officially old because I'm like, oh, but everyone knows the movie, and I'm like, oh, no, wait, that movie is <laughs> probably more obscure to a large chunk of people now. Uh, I've never so seen it. Re- I really should. Oh, really? Oh, it's great. Yeah. Um, so basically. Uh, a, a little uh, thief con artist gets sent to look after a rich dude's son and becomes obsessed with the guy and the lifestyle he lives uh, to the point where he ends up committing murder to take on this guy's role so he can live that life that he's been now introduced to. How's that for a summary? And then That's the perfect summary. <laughs> yeah, and hijinks ensue. There's actually, yeah. there's like seven books in the Ripley series. Like, I had no idea that it was a franchise until like years after I first read it. But there's like, you know, the the mysterious Mr. Ripley and like Ripley's Day Out and like all these weird other Patricia was just churning them out. But yeah, yeah it's yeah. um but yeah, hijinks and Hugh, for sure. Yeah. So when did you first read that book? Um damn. I don't know. Is that bad for this podcast? Let me try uh, and it's making me feel better because I'm like you a lot of the time where like I, I'm really bad at placing anything anywhere mm. in my memory. But I uh, will say I always tend to buy new books when I'm like, when I go back to Perth for like the Christmas holiday or whatever, or like the Christmas, because my birthday is two days before Christmas. So I always end up spending my birthday uh, and Christmas in Perth and at beautiful summer days. There's nothing to do. I've sort of slowly, uh, 
you know, distance myself from all my friends back in Perth. Um, and I will buy a bunch of books. Is that a conscious choice? (laughs) (laughs) No, not at all. Uh, maybe it is on their part, but for me, it was completely accidental. Um, but I'm pretty sure I must have bought the book and probably first read the book, uh, in sunny Perth. And it's a very sunny Mm. book. It's set, you know, on Italian beaches and stuff like that. It's very, it's the perfect beach read. I feel like it must have invented that genre, you know, that sort of like juicy, pulpy, sunny murder book. Do you read many juicy, pulpy, sunny murder books? I do, actually. I quite enjoy a murder book. I'm a big fan of um, Axe Christie, Um, although a lot of her Ah, juicy, pulpy murder books are less sunny. They're more dreary. But occasionally she'll, like, send Miss Marple to, like, the Caribbean to like take in the airs or whatever people in the olden days used to do to treat consumption. They're like, go to yeah. the coast. It's funny when you hear it. Yeah. I remember reading about it the first time being like, ah, oh, okay. Yeah. Cause it's like, there was lead in everything and it was definitely yeah. so unhealthy. So going to the coast just means you get some clear air for once. I'm like, oh yeah, that's true. I never thought yeah. about that. Yeah. It, it makes sense. I love, uh, yeah, no, I've, big, big Ag- I've discovered, so I'm slowly going to very, very slowly over my life go through Agatha Christie because I've discovered it's like the perfect um, audio book. I've only yeah. been doing the Poirot so far, but it's the, because it's just got that whole ra- <laughs> sitting around a radio play vibe when you listen to it in audio books. So it's like, it's Absolutely. just delightful. Yeah, yeah. So I've been doing just uh, just some of the classic Poirots. Maybe I should try Marple as well. There's so many Poirots though. There's only like 12 Marples, I think. But I think my favorite Christie is a Marple but on the whole, I think Poirot's a better uh, detective. Okay, so you've you, you got a long history. It's okay, so your liking of this book indicates that it was specifically good. And this is see, this is this is the work I'm going to be putting in here, Alistair. We're working together on this. I will yeah, find right. why this is your favorite. We're so building. Obviously, this. it stood out for one of two reasons. One is like it is magically the greatest book ever written, which is probably you know pretty hard to objectively prove about anything. <laughs> Or it appealed to you in some way, as well as maybe the time when you read it. So I'm going to probably go with that option more likely <laughs> than this is singularly, objectively the greatest book ever written. Um, wow. Rather than just a brilliant book that you've happened to have as a favorite. Um, what is there about this in terms of the one that stands out for me straight away with this is obviously the uh, the fish out of water con man sort of thing. The, mm. the, the it's It's almost got that Gatsby-esque thing of like looking in from the outside yeah. I'm guessing actually now that I think about it, but I'm sure people have referenced the fact that it's got that thing in it of someone going in to mimic something. Is that Was that something that appealed to you? Is that something you've liked? Yeah. Well, I guess I – because I think it was about the time when I moved to Melbourne, I killed this guy called Alistair Baldwin and then sort mm-hmm. of took his apartment. Um, and that's how this whole you know comedy career began and everything. That's um, stressful. A notoriously visual medium standard. <laughs> but no, I um, I guess I don't yeah, I guess fish out of water is it's a very like Perth Perth complex thing, you know, to feel like there's a party happening in like a different room or whatever and uh just thinking about like the day that you'll get there and live amongst the uh the East Coast elite, you know. Yeah, no, that's I, I do sometimes feel like there's a bit of a you definitely like I've lived in Sydney for a few years and there I was like, oh wow, everyone from Perth leaves. <laughs> Went to yeah. and goes like to the East <laughs> Coast. So 
We love to um, escape in Perth. It's our favorite pastime. Mm. So is that something? Uh, okay, yeah. And then you got like the not exactly sunny, but Melbourne still got the because uh, that's the other <laughs> side, right? You've got the fish out of water thing, but also yeah, that that feeling like you're looking at a almost you know that what's the word for it when you're looking at that envy of like that lifestyle envy, looking at those people being like, oh my god, they're so fancy and luxurious. Um, yeah, was that something you as well? Is that a thing or is that not? That's probably similar. I guess. I mean, doesn't everyone want to be fabulously wealthy and famous and have no real commitments? And I think in Perth, I was very, you know, over there, you're very uh, privileged. You get wonderful beaches and you're on the correct side of the continent that you get to watch the sunset over the beach, which is a true, like, reading bliss is to sort of be like making your way through a paperback with sand in between every page, sort of making the spine burst open. You can't close it properly. And then the sun's gently setting over the water, you know, and everything's turning orange and blue. And, yeah, it's, it's quite nice, you know. Maybe that's why I've stopped reading as much. It's actually just context. I guess that could be, like, to be honest, that does sound delightful. <laughs> it's quite nice. And it's very, you know, Patricia Highsmith, I think, does – a great job. She's very evocative of, you know, that very, that like Mediterranean coastal uh, world and the sort of, I don't know, like the comfortable, lazy boredom of those kinds of places where I think if you're having like, it sort of gives you the time and freedom to really obsess on minor things that become major psychological things and, Eventually, out of boredom, you're just like, I might as well kill this guy, you know? Yeah. You know, that was Ripley's exciting. main problem. He was very yeah, bored. Boredom. He was very bored, jealous, and gay. And that actually, now that I say it, is that's my whole deal too. So <laughs> Jealous and gay? <laughs> that does sound like a dangerous combo. <laughs> Absolutely. It's one of the most deadly combos. It's a careful for him. Is- He's bored, dangerous, and gay. You know, like, well, man, that's... Uh- it's a loaded weapon right there. <laughs> Absolutely. They took homosexuality off the DSM, but if you include it with jealousy and boredom, it is actually still a mental illness, uh, at least in most countries. That's a, yeah. actually, so I, I saw, so is the character actually, I didn't, I didn't re- read that. I knew he was obsessed, so I thought there'd be a subtext of him have obviously being gay, but is it actually more overt than that? Well, yeah. I mean, you read it because this was, because I'd heard about the movie. I think I'd heard about the movie before and I understood it to be a very homoerotic text. But then I remember reading it and being like, this is so explicit. And then he's like, because Tom Ripley, he'll monologue, like people will in the book be like, you're obviously gay for Dickie Greenleaf. And he's like, no, I'm not. Let me try on his clothes, you know? Um, And so I think... And, but yeah, I think Patricia Highsmith, she's very cagey about explicitly answering it in um, interviews, but Mm. surely, I mean, also she wrote the gayest book ever, The Price of Salt, which was adapted into Carol. She wrote all these, like, (laughs) you know, she wrote Strangers on a Train. She wrote The Talented Mystery Please. She wrote all these, like, gritty murder books, but then she wrote Carol, you know? But every... Yeah, it's quite interesting. I've read a couple of essays about her life. She, yeah, had all these weird 
psychosexual relationships with people and stuff like that. But yeah, right. I think I think Ripley's gay. He's got to be. I mean, that's uh, you know, that's, that's my that's reading. Everything's yeah, subjective, yeah. you know. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it sounds like you you read it like that. Have you? Uh, yeah, he's obviously got the. Obs- <laughs> He's obviously got the obsession thing, which is easy to read, but you can go both ways, and that's the point of anything. You can interpret it. As long as you can find the evidence and write the essay, put in a topic sentence, it's it's true. Absolutely. Is that degree of, like, obsession? Yeah, I guess that, that I think that's probably relatable, isn't it, to everyone at some point? Not to that degree. Yeah. I, think I, I think I would say I'm probably a more ambitious than most kind of person. I feel like I'm very, like... Ambition and spite driven. And I feel like it's um, very energizing if you lean into that obsession with getting a little bit more, you know, like I've, um, I don't know. I don't know if I'll ever feel uh, perfectly content. Is that sad to say? No, I have a very good life, but you know, it's, I like um, wanting a bit more, wanting a bit more money, wanting a bit more acclaim, wanting a bit, you know, wanting to go to the Met Gala. Sounds a lot like a certain character in a certain book, this <laughs> attitude of yours. I know. I really, yeah, yeah. I'm, I share a lot of similarities with him, you know. <laughs> I didn't think it would get here, but, you know, it's a fantastic book. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that's hilarious. I feel like I just left you and it's just gone into some other direction altogether. Uh, the, uh, so, cause it is an action paced, like it looks like it's, 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 a, it's paperback. It's, it's summer reading. It means it's fun. It's a page turner. Um, yeah. You've done writing as well. This is my week's segue to talk about your writing. <laughs> um, uh, cause you do script writing. Is that in uh, comedy or drama? I do actually. I am. Um, so I've mostly worked in comedy. I've like, written for like a lot of satirical shows and stuff like that. But lately I have actually had some work on some murder mysteries and that is, you know, more of what I want to get into. But I like, I also like a mashup. I'm sort of, I've been working on like a, I've been working on a show which is like um, the log line that they used to pitch it was funny broad church. So that sort of is my exact taste, but there's, yeah, I have yet to become as uh, even in both those things. I'm much more of a comedy person. But maybe there's just more work in comedy, you know, at least in this country. Yeah, I was going to say possibly. At least it's it's always an easier pitch. Feel better for a bit, guys, rather than yeah. deep dive into the psychological horror of this person over six episodes. <laughs> so did you like uh, – because I, I find it interesting, like screenwriting, it's something which I have – I've been – like – sort of see but i never really done myself like how do you are you always writing something um i guess i don't know <laughs> um, I, pr- I probably would have said yes but then you know the past 18 months happened and then there would be like months at a time where the idea of having even a single creative thought felt impossible to grasp at you know but weirdly i don't know i wonder this with like quote unquote writer's block, whether you're just like banking up the creativity. And then when you finally do feel inspiration again, it explodes out of you or whether that's just like, is that time of non-productivity completely lost time? Or are you just like, you know, filling your subconscious up with coal so that 
eventually you can actualize it into the creative juices flowing. <laughs> Look, I I have an opinion, but I, I don't know if I want to tell you. It seems like you've really banked on this coal idea. <laughs> what are you trying to tell me, that I'm rationalizing, that I'm treading water, trying to justify the 18 months loss of my career? I, I, I wouldn't put it like that. I think more like, you know, you do what you do. So it's like not a loss. It's what you're doing then and then you're doing this now. So I would say it like that. But I think the idea of it storing up for a spurt of such creativity, I, it just mm. seems like how much creativity do you want? Like, it, <laughs> we're still telling a story, aren't we? Like, how creative are we going to get, you know? I guess. Yeah, but um, like, so I guess one of the things which I've developed this theory over the last like year as well regarding creativity and stuff, I feel like a big difference between the people who are like highly successful creative people and someone maybe who's not is like actually the issue isn't creativity. The issue is like cutting the creativity down into something that's palatable. Like as in anyone can almost splurt thoughts onto yeah. a page, but the issue is then grinding that over an extended <laughs> period of time into something that is actually like captures what you're trying to do in a way that other people can engage with. Yeah. I think that a lot about like artists who become really famous, like posthumously or whatever. It's like, did it just take someone else after Van Gogh died to sort of like go through the mess of his house and be like, actually this one, this one, this one, they're good, burn the rest. And it's actually that person's curatorial eye which means that we have this great respect for this work. But if it had just been left in a scattered mess, you know. Everyone would be like, what the fuck is this? (laughs) (laughs) You almost need that, you know, that outside eye to sort of corral the mess of your creative process into like, yeah, bite-sized chunks. Something like that would be the dream. But like when you've come up with something, do you like funnel it? Like how long, I guess, that's what I'm interested in that process. Like there's a creative element that how much of a grind is there? Like how many rewrites do you do on a script and things like that? Well, it's sort of, I don't know. The like range of types of screenwriting jobs is very different as well. So like I worked on a show called The Weekly, which was like satire about the news. And that's like a nine to five job where you show up, you write as many jokes as you can and you clock out. Whereas if you're working on a scripted thing, I'm working on a, play at the moment and like so much that is just like thinking I guess thinking about the thematic territory of it and then I I thought about like the premise of the play and then I used that to apply to a play development thing where I would write a bit and then get actors to say it to get a sense of what the dynamic would actually be like And then I took that away and began working on it more, trying to like do a second polish on just the first scene of what I intend to be a full play. And then I did that a couple of times. And then this is the 18 months gap where I couldn't do anything, but I'm back baby, which is why it's top of mind. I'm able to write work on this play again. And now it's just like, yeah, it's like throwing you almost have to do like a vomit draft or like not self-censor in the first draft just to get stuff on the page. And I'm still in that zone with the rest of the play. And I feel like it is coming out of me quite quickly. But then in the back of my mind is the understanding that there will be a sort of slower, more surgical 
second draft and third draft process ahead, you know. Mm. Right. That does sound like a a lot more of a drain than tonight, the, a week, the weekly, I mean. Um, <laughs> How just, dare just, you? Well, I'm just saying, it's, it's a lot of you just walk in nine to five. Here's some jokes about uh, Pete Dunn's lack of hair. Done. <laughs> See you that, later. <laughs> that's good, actually. I'll remember that if they ever get me back. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I, I guess, like, uh, and that's a funny thing, right? Because you moved over here from Perth. I'm guessing part of it would have been because the opportunities literally just work-wise rather than lifestyle as well, right? Absolutely. Yeah, I came over specifically to do a screenwriting degree at the Victorian College of the Arts, but also there's just no production in Perth. So it's sort of like it is one of the industries where you really have to go to either Melbourne or Sydney. And then I, you know... I chose Melbourne just because of this course, but I might as well have chosen Sydney. And I also, it's so weird to me that there is like this weird rivalry because to me, they were always this, they were just the East Coast, you know, like they're the same city. Oh, get the hell out of here. <laughs> what are you even talking about? Is what there this difference? Ah, Talk to me about the nuance between, not e- I not really would close. like to know. Melbourne's where it's at. Really? Simple. Done. Nah. So I, I am actually like, because I lived in Sydney for years, so I, I've, I've got a huge soft spot for it. Um, it's It's got a lot of stuff going for it as well. No, 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 no doubt. But I think ultimately uh, it's weird. And I feel like uh, the whole, it might be totally my experience of just having family here as well that feeds into this, but I just feel the notion of uh, the atomized individual is slightly stronger in Sydney than here. Like it just feels like the whole city of Melbourne feels more attached to each other than the city of Sydney does, if you know what I mean. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like it really feels here like, yeah, every suburb is like still kind of washing into each other a lot more than Sydney where it feels very much like different sections of it are just different universes from each other. Like there's just no, there's no, no connection in that sense. Yeah. Um, but of course, I am saying that as someone who went from having the community to living in Sydney, where I am just that. So that could definitely be impacting my views. <laughs> Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you. With professional-grade industrial supplies, count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Yeah. No, that's, yeah, that's, uh, that's good to know. Yeah. Yeah, that's it. But you haven't noticed that difference yourself from living over this side. Did you feel that? Okay, this is me totally, and this might be too personal as well, I just realized. But... <laughs> um, that whole idea of looking in, is that something which you felt as well from maybe, I don't know, being the gay community? Is that a thing in Perth or is that like fine from back then? You were like, 
might have think. I don't know. Well, yeah, I mean, I because I moved when I was like eighteen. Like with, within a month of, I like graduated year twelve, turned eighteen, and moved to Melbourne within the space of a month at the end of twenty thirteen. Wow. And then I sort of like I was gay and had like dated a boy or whatever, but I was like, I think moving to Melbourne, I was just like, it's a gay city. I'm just going to be like gay, like all the time rather than like selective about like who knew or like how active I was. And, but yeah, I'm like, I don't have a great read on like the scene in Perth just because I left before I was 18, but Mm. certainly Melbourne is one of the gayer cities that you could find in the world <laughs> oh, yeah that just sounds so funny to me <laughs> gay cities around um oh, okay yeah so so it was more like it was still formative years so you didn't really get to experience that switch as much because you kind of you grew with it kind of what you're saying i suppose so but i do think it does connect to the, like the i guess that outside looking in thing it's like anything which sort of like would separate you from the norm, I think, fosters the kind of, like, introspection of, like, jealousy or outside obsession or wanting to become the other or that kind of thing that I think is all sort of thematically in Ripley, you know. Hmm. Yeah. Again, look, I'm just I'm just throwing the hooks out, seeing if any of it are... <laughs> no, <laughs> trying to it's landing. Favorite, you know? Yeah, yeah, the murder mystery about an outsider who looks like <laughs> style envy on another group, yeah, and goes through right, obsessed right. with it. It's sounding, it's sounding like a bit, it's sounding like a bit. But you do now want I'm to embarrassed talk about the that other. I'm yeah, <laughs> that it's like so narcissistic, you know. It's like so <laughs> clearly self-obsessed. I'm like, my favorite book is a mirror that I hold, yeah. you know. I think the big twist that everyone realizes one day is that it, everything's a mirror, always, <laughs> everything. So, <laughs> that's the dirty secret to life. Um, I also have to ask about this book. Um, it, is it out now? I'm actually in a book that is available to purchase now, the Growing Up It Disabled in Australia anthology. Definitely have to talk <laughs> about that because um, even though it's a personal story, so even though I'm guessing your screenwriting is obviously fiction, but this is more you writing a short story about yourself. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. So there was a call out for, there's been a series of like growing up, whatever, in Australia. So there was a call out for uh, an anthology all about growing up disabled in Australia. And I wrote a story about this weird thing in Australia where uh, horse riding is subsidized for disabled children as a form of like, it's called hippotherapy, but it's like therapeutic horse riding, and there's no evidence that it works at all. Can I? That needs to be stressed. Yeah. There's no reason. It's only. It's like. It's like some mad scientist was like the way to cure disability is to turn disabled children into like centaurs or whatever, and just have them like operating, abled equine bodies. But essentially, yeah. As a kid, I um I was a I went to Writing for the Disabled Australia, uh, and I, um, yeah, the story is about, I guess, the last day I ever rode a horse, uh, where there was, it's all about how WA doesn't have daylight savings, but we trialed it one year, but tr- 
because we were not used to it, that sort of cascaded into a series of domino effects that eventually led to um, this horse getting spooked, you know, and me getting whiplash, secondary to daylight savings. But yeah, it was quite nice to write because I think, yeah, I like quite like writing for other people. And obviously with screenwriting, it's either satire, you know, in the voice of, say, Charlie Pickering, or it's like scripted stuff or it's like murder mysteries that's entirely not grounded in reality. So to do this like little personal story, I sort of, because I hadn't written prose in a long time either, but it was quite nice to get back to that and, you know, maybe I'll even write a book. George. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like you. If it's something that stands out as like an enjoyable thing, I don't see. At the at the least, is that not expressing it in words, getting that stuff out? I feel like. Mm. Um, was that all right? So 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 was the rupalash the reason you didn't ride horses again, or was it just it happened to be at the, around the same time? But then you got older and you just went <laughs> riding horses. George, it was the whiplash. I I actually it sort of turned me off the whole thing. Oh. Um, weirdly enough, I didn't. It's easier to get back on the horse when it's like not literally a horse, you know, when it's like a metaphor. But like actually getting back on a horse that gave you whiplash. No, I didn't want to. Right, right. No, that's fair enough. I mean, that's a, I guess, uh, yeah, like that's classic anything, right? You're just like, ah, it's not <laughs> worth the effort. <laughs> like, yeah. why do I need to work through? I feel like my uh, equine requirements in life are going to be pretty small <laughs> to put in this effort. Yeah, it's never come up, I'll be honest. But, you know, maybe one day when, you know, fuel reserves run out and we sort of return to a more agrarian lifestyle, maybe it'll be useful to sort of... I'm sure I remember all the basics, you know. Yeah, it's like riding a bike. Absolutely. It's like riding a horse. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Okay, well, that does sound like a interesting... That sounds like a very good short story. Let me put it that way. That does sound Thank like a very good story. Because you'd be able to tie well, in it's... so much of yourself and your change <laughs> depending on... How old were you when that happened? I was like 11, I think, when that happened. Okay, probably better if you were a couple of years older, but still pretty good. Still pretty good. <laughs> you know, it's all part of the rich tapestry, you know. Yeah, yeah, might have been fun. Maybe more like 12, 13, I think. But yeah, it's all right, it's all right. All right, all right. <laughs> Not to turn your life into a little just piece of fiction. Uh, <laughs> give you notes on it. Here's some notes on your life, all right, drama-wise. Move that around. Uh, so in terms of the, this uh, disability, do you think that uh, impacted the, the writing side of things much as well? You know, so I have like a mild muscular dystrophy and I wear leg braces. But I think as a kid, like one of the reasons that I am a writer is that instead of playing sport, I read so I was always sort of reading beyond my year level as a child. And I think if you read enough, you are naturally good at writing. And then if you're a couple of years ahead, you get that first piece of juicy validation uh, where someone's like, you know, you're quite good at this writing thing. And then for the rest of your life, you chase that high. So it's definitely... Yeah, it's definitely fed into who I am. And I think, you know, that desire to chase that validation is like maybe the thing that brought me to Melbourne as well. Because at a certain point, you know, you've met Tim Winton. There's nothing else to do. You sort of have to go to Melbourne (laughs) if you want any more validation. 
I won the Tim Winton Young Writers Award at Subiaco Library when I was 14. Oh, wow. That's legit. It is for 14-year-olds. So, you know, it's like, it's not like I was a wunderkind. I was being assessed against other teenagers, but I sort of, yeah, I was lauded. I met Tim Winton. He was very strange. In his speech, he talked about, like, killing everyone over the age of 70. At like okay. at, at an award for a kid's writing competition. It's very bizarre. He's a strange <laughs> character. Um, um, yeah. No, they, they, yeah. I guess they, they, I never, you never think about how much, again, it's so interesting, like the stuff which is like, oh, because I like another stuff is just because, like you said, you were just reading more because those other avenues weren't available. So you just started writing more. So it's like just such a nuts and bolts reason, which I like it. It's so yeah. interesting in that sense. Um, like it's not some ethereal thing. It's literally like, no, nah, I was just, Nothing else to do. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. I'd just be a different guy if I was, a, you know, born differently or whatever. But yeah, it's really, yeah, just cause and effect. And now I'm here talking to Me you via podcast. Exactly. I feel like we're going to go into detail now. Wearing clothes. <laughs> Put the mic in front of me. So uh, just quickly, the other book though, let's because you did mention it and you were so 50 views, so I feel like we should at least give it some airtime for your sake as well. And I'm interested in it. So The Disaster Tourist. Yeah, I think it's good. It's an eco-satire thriller. It's about it's about this, it's by this Korean author, Yoon Koyun, and it's about this uh, woman, Yona, and she works at a travel agency which uh, specializes in like volunteerism packages, like privileged first world people who sort of go on a plane to like help cities that are experiencing like sinkholes or landslides or tsunamis or that kind of thing. And she, um, she is asked to audit uh, this resort on this like tiling, tiny Island nation. And she goes there and it seems fine. You know, she like stays at the resort and then every day they get driven out to like where this massive sinkhole that killed like half the population happened and she sort of meets people living in the slums and stuff like that but then on the final day of her trip she misses the boat back to the mainland and she discovers that it was all like a ruse and they're all like playing along with this narrative that they're in desperate need of people to help them and they're actually planning like a second sinkhole because this first sinkhole was sort of like decades ago. And so people right. have been caring less. So they care less to visit. So she sort of becomes embroiled in this weird satirical conspiracy to fake a natural disaster in order to boost the tourism of what is otherwise a completely forgettable island. <laughs> I like it. So this is interesting because this is, this is very different in some ways to what you described before with Talented Mr. Ripley, but you did mention that you were seeing connections between the two, even the build-up to the episode. Yeah. So straight away, I'm going to ask about that. What, what was connections you were seeing? Well, they're both very sunny books, you know. They're both set a lot on the beach. I think that was the main thing. I mean, even the cover, certainly of The Disaster Tourist, is just like of this woman splayed out on like a beach towel on a beach just in this random island nation. But I think it's like, it's that I think juxtaposition of paradise and disaster. 
And I think The Disaster Tourist would be a good alternate title for The Talented Miss Ripley because it's just someone who goes to a lovely coastal location and fucks shit up, you know? But yeah, yeah it is about, and it's about, I guess, um, lies and conspiracy. Well, it's, I mean, it's, to be honest, he's asking a whole bunch of, like, I'm going to assume it's not, because obviously you hear something like this and it's almost like, oh, that could fit into a dangerous narrative of people being like, nah, they've got to look after themselves, you know, pull them up by the bootstraps. They don't deserve any support, which is like, mm. you know, not exactly true, I think, on a statistic level. But the idea of misguided intentions as these rich people again, who yeah. are like, oh, I'm so good. Mm. <laughs> I'm like, I'm going to go here and help with that. Absolutely. I'm kind of seeing a connection there somehow. I don't know. Yeah. And like the, yeah, for for someone who's been hard done by either Tom Ripley or, you know, um, this island, for example, it's like there is something inherently endearing about seeing an underdog just take, you know, and take from rich people and prey on rich people's sort of natural sense of being good and how everything they have, they haven't taken. And in fact, anything they give is charity. And so, yeah, for these underdogs, I don't know, it feels quite, yeah, it's like, what is inexcusable under capitalism? Like all wealth at some point was (laughs) stolen. You know, there's nothing inherently earned about status, about wealth. So it's sort of, there's something exciting about taking yeah okay okay this is a, <laughs> this is a communist podcast now <laughs> yeah yeah no this is a, okay um no because like i uh think there's some definitely some truth to what you're saying but also at the same time um yeah i think the whole idea of the fraudulence of status and as a measure of people's worth can be severely misguided um mm. ultimately because like a material interest in stuff is fundamentally flawed i think um mm. so what's interesting here though and, we, and i want to get your opinion on it so someone like doing a tourist thing going there to do a uh charity disaster tourism as it was right they, they've mm. got volunteer tourism right couldn't you argue they're trying to do the right thing and this is the interesting thing it's like yeah ultimately it is good but it's also i mean it happens in reality you know like there was a time when like you know, the leading news headline was Haiti and everyone donated money and there was all these concerts to raise money. But then at a certain point in the first world, in the Western imagination, there's boredom and there's this desire to move on to the next most pressing disaster. There's no, like, meaningful commitment to any kind of redistribution of resources. It's more like because it is so tied up in how good it feels to give you only want to give to the you know the needy people who are the first news headline no one's like still bragging about donating to haiti but we should still be donating yeah it's sort of and this is why the i find the book so interesting it is about like if you if you have this island which is still feeling the ramifications of this a natural disaster that happened decades ago, but in every everyone else except them has moved on. There is something understandable about them wanting to fake that same disaster again, because 
the first world has left them with an economy that is entirely reliant on their, I guess, feelings of guilt or feelings of charity towards this island. They don't have any sort of self-sufficiency outside Mm. of, I guess, leveraging people feeling bad for them. Yeah, so you're saying it's almost morally correct uh, what they're doing in an argument. You could I say think it's, <laughs> I think it's morally understandable. I think it's, yeah. and I, yeah, I don't know about morally correct, but I think, I think assuming that they wouldn't do that as a neutral option, it sort of paints like the first world as like the protagonist of that story. But from their perspective, what are they going to do? They're just going to take it. Like they're taking an active step. So the moment you see it from their perspective rather than from this protagonist, Yona, who works for this travel agency in the first world, it sort of becomes entirely understandable. But then through through the book, this sort of scheme to fake this second disaster, that itself is filled with individual greed, individual corruption, individual, I guess, um, prioritizing of some lives over other lives mm-hmm. because eventually people decide that a fake disaster to really sell it should have real victims, you know? So it becomes, you know, there's no, no one's ethical under capitalism, whatever, whatever, whatever. We've heard this, <laughs> but yeah, I don't think it's morally correct, but I think it's, um, I it's don't think it was an end result. But, yeah. I don't think volunteerism yeah. is, uh, morally correct either. I don't think what we do to these places that experience these disasters is morally correct. So why should we I hold mean, them to a higher standard than oh, we no. hold ourselves? Uh, yeah, no, definitely. I, I, I definitely think there's a risk in any privilege of like using that as your position. <laughs> like if you haven't been there, yeah. uh, but obviously that don't want to fall into the trap of being like, everything's okay as well. So <laughs> like, you know, that's not right either. Now I'm trying to tie this book together, the last book, and then you moving to here for screenwriting. Uh, even though obviously there's always a bunch of reasons why anyone uh, does anything. So, you know. Yeah. Those are a lot of reasons to move. I sort of, yeah, I guess I like the idea of a clean slate. Um, yeah. Like the, that's sort of like, I don't know. Sometimes I'll go back to person. I'll like see a lot of people that I went to high school with and they'll be hanging out like in the same French group that they did in high school. And I'm like, I think a healthy, like burning. So new stuff can grow is important. You know, I think, and that's, and obviously talented Mr. Ripley is about someone reinventing himself as a completely different person. Shine, you could see in your eyes was the point you were about to make, but I think I, was I don't not, know. I was, was, was going to let it hang. <laughs> I think it was cool to be able to, like, you know, I was very uh, nerdy in high school, and I think I, you know, I still was when I moved to Melbourne. But I sort of, yeah, I it felt like it was a very conscious decision when I arrived in Melbourne to decide these are the parts of my personality that I'm happy to bring with me. And those are the bits that I'm happy to leave behind, you know. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, I mean, I get like again, it's uh, firstly formative years as well. Like Eighteen, that is a, a big time for that, anyway. And your high school versus, yeah, I could only imagine. Um, Absolutely. Oh, okay, man. This is like clearly your favorite for many obvious reasons. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, you got me. Yeah. <laughs> Jesus. All right. Okay. I thought it was just fixing the rich. Now it's something else entirely. Oh, wow. Reinvention. Um, although that it's is a thematically it. rich book. I really, I do recommend anyone read it. I think um, Patricia Highsmith, she's such a fantastic writer and it's such, um, she's so good at suspense and you just know from the first page that this protagonist is someone who will do bad things, but there's so much build up and release, but you're never like, I think I read it within two days, you know, it's that sort of gripping a book. That's a skill, writing like one of those where it's a genuine page turner. It might be, you can look down at all you want. It's, it is a skill still, like I think, for that kind of, that art. Form. Absolutely. Yeah. Anyone who derides it can't do it and is jealous. <laughs> let's, let's, let's say that about everything from now on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Anything I love that bad, system. Yes. it's actually because you're jealous you can't do it. Yeah, exactly. You think that's like, well, why don't you? Do <laughs> um, is that the kind of book you're reading at the moment? Actually, fuck. I um, I should have. One of my favorite writers, actually, is Nigella Lawson. Um, I think she's such a fantastic writer, and I think she is almost cursed by how charismatic she is on screen. I think a lot of people overlook her writing ability, but her. If you've ever read any of her cookbooks, I um, I thoroughly recommend them. I do. I like cooking quite a bit, and I often cook, uh, right. you know, fancy roast chickens and nice lasagnas, and you know, experiment and make random pastas with what is around me, like some kind of ready, steady cook challenge for myself. Mm. Okay. All right. Okay. That's yeah. <laughs> That's not bad. I didn't know she was such a good writer. I feel like the, the charisma would, because like Anthony Bourdain is obviously the poster child, I think, of person who cooks who then writes amazing. Because I remember him being like, mm. yeah, his writing is very, very good. I don't know. Have you, have you read any of his stuff? I haven't. I really, I should read um, Kitchen Confidential. Yeah, it's it's very, he's, he's like actually genuine talent with writing. It's, it's, it's amazing. Like I was, uh, yeah, it's very good. Highly recommend um, yeah. yeah, very, very, very uh, vivid language. It takes you right there. You feel it. You taste it. It's um, and like, yeah, it's very well done. Yeah. That's what um, good anyways, food writing should be. Yes, exactly. And but and then he's talking about other things as well, but yeah. with the same level of skill. So it's great. Uh, I think we've kind of jumped around a bit and uh, all that, but I'm uh, getting towards the end now. Before we go, any you want to give a shout out? Or anyone wants to follow you anywhere? Where can they see your stuff? Oh, for sure. Um, you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Baldwin Alistair. It's just surname first, duodecimal style, you know, for all the nice. book fans listening. <laughs> That's well, it's selected just for the book fans. I like that. And the book is called Growing Up Disabled in Australia. Uh, which you can find in all good bookstores. Perfect. Let's call it there. And uh, I'll say again, thank you very much for being on the show, Alistair. Uh, people can check out, yeah, your socials and the book there. And yeah, thanks for being on. Wonderful. Thanks for having me. No worries. Thanks for listening. If you want to help support this show and all the other shows we do here at Sans Pants Radio, then why not subscribe to sanspantsplus.com? For as little as $5 a month, you could have access to a whole bunch of bonus shows and content. Once again, that's sanspantsplus.com.